0: Good morning. Sympathy and sovereignty are qualities that express God's goodness and his greatness. And we've been looking at Hebrews 2 through chapter 4 because it seems to combine these two things. And we'll find that's the case again this morning. The exodus from Egypt is the defining point in Jewish history. And millions of individuals left the promised land. When the dust cleared, only two of the original crew actually entered. Jacob and, what is it, Joshua and Caleb. That's it. The rest died in the desert. The writer to the letter to the Hebrews performs a spiritual autopsy. He identifies the spiritual sickness that claimed their lives what it says Hebrews three, fourteen, it says for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end as it is said today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion for who were those who heard and yet rebelled. Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses, and with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the in the wilderness, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Why did so many children of God die in the desert? We hear a couple of things that describe what happened. They rebelled. Rebellion is a word that's rooted in bitterness. It's a sense of bitterness that expresses itself in grumbling and complaining. So that was part of the problem. It says as well that they were disobedient. This word for disobedient is a disobedience that's rooted in disbelief. It's somebody telling you to do something you don't think they're going to follow through, so you're not going to do what they say. And that's the specific kind of disobedience. So that was there. There was bitterness and there was disbelief rooted in disobedience rooted in disbelief but at the deepest level the writer indicates that they were unable to enter because of unbelief it was a lack of faith and so when we look at the roots from which all the fruit of rebellion and hard heartedness and sin all those things are the fruit but if we trace it down to the root what the writer indicates It was about unbelief. What kind of unbelief? What didn't they believe? It says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The unbelief is related to what God was saying. What did God say to them? He said a lot of things. But in this particular context, the point seems to be that God issued an invitation to them, which he wanted them to follow through on. And this was the invitation Enter my rest. Enter my rest. And apparently, what happened, they looked at the barren land. They were in the wilderness at the time. And they said, what rest are you talking about? Empty shells and barren hills. There's no rest here. This is the unbelief. Rest-resistant unbelief. That's the problem. Rest-resistant unbelief Um, if rest is the solution then restlessness is the problem let's look at let's think about rest first rest is the solution entering God's rest was and still is priority one what does God want for you we could put that a number of different ways he wants you to obey okay he wants you to believe, okay, all those things and those are true. Being very specific, he wants us to enter his rest. That was his objective, is his objective, will be his objective. That's what it is. Priority one. What does God want for us? He wants for us to enter his rest. Um, This is directly related to avoiding the mistakes the Israelites made. That's what it says. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So if we don't want to fall into the same trap that the Israelites fell in the wilderness there's a very simple but simpler to say more difficult to apply solution. Enter God's rest. And in so doing, we're told that we will not fall into the same sort of disobedience. The strongest command in the Bible here, with respect to, there's a number of ways that you can make a command, but this is the strongest. It's literally, make every effort to enter God's rest. It's literally, hurry up and rest. Rest, to be quick about it. That's what it's saying. It's surprising. This is somewhat surprising. Because what it's assuming and implying that rest is the antidote for spiritual sickness. Rest is the antidote for spiritual sickness, whether it be hard-heartedness or rebellion or sin or unbelief. Uh, rest is the antidote. It's not talking about trying to make ourselves more restful. That's not what it's saying. It does not say you Get rest. It's telling us to enter His rest. It's That's the destination. We are to enter His rest. So it's focusing on His rest and ours. A God at rest. A God at rest. When you think about God, what do you imagine? Think about Him. I'm not sure if you put a picture in your brain or... Got an image? I would imagine that somebody at rest might not be the first vision in our minds. When we think about God, we normally don't think about him being at rest. In fact, we think about him being fairly agitated, looking at the world and trying to figure out why can't I get people to believe in me, and how about this and that, and we might not put those words on it, but in general, my sense is that we don't think about God as being At rest. Uh, But that is what the says in Hebrews 4.10 whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works that God did from his. Rest is the realm of God. The realm of finished work. If you are moving into an apartment you have some things to do. So like that room back there. We're going to have some Intech's going to come in. They're going to they took some stuff out. It's drying out. They're going to put stuff in, and when their work is finished, what we're going to be able to do is open the back, and some of you are going to sit back there, and we'll serve coffee back there, and once their work is finished, then we'll be able to enjoy it. That's the image, that God's work is finished. And because his work is finished, he is at rest. Our rest is one of the perks that comes from being God. If you're God, you can afford to rest because... Nobody can tell you what to do. You determine what you're going to do, you do it, and you rest. That's uh, one of the perks. In fact, would you agree? We could think of a number of attributes of God, loving, just, holy. I'm going to suggest that at the foundation of all of them is this, rest. Rest is the prerogative of deity. If you are God, you can afford to rest. And that's what the writer seems to be saying. And rest is then where God lives more than what God gives. Okay, this is all well and good. God's finished work. I'll tell you what, my work isn't finished. You can think of our work's not finished, we have stuff to happen back there, our work's not finished vocationally, our work's not finished spiritually, we are works in progress. So this is all well and good to think about God, but is it practical for us? We're told that it's important. We live in a very, we, live, we have a very difficult time, I think, because this is talking about God. I think we have a difficult time thinking about God. We did a survey 20, 25 years ago. Asked people, um, if there was a church you wanted to go to, tell me about what it would need to do. And this is what they said. It would have to challenge me to think deeply about God. Challenge me to think deeply about God. I think that's more difficult now than it was 25 years ago. Our, Our culture doesn't pause. To think and reflect as much anymore 25 years later. We are, we move fast. Our, our attention goes from this to that. And to think about God is not something that we do comfortably. I think there's a couple of reasons. I think that when we think about God, we think about things that we have not done. And so thinking about God is kind of like thinking about a policeman. You know, somebody that you know, you're kind of glad they're there to protect you, but it, it make you uncomfortable, just the same. You know what? It, it feels to me like thinking about God is like approaching reflective glass. You know, reflective glass. If you look at it, the initial image is you, and so you go there, and and if you facing glass, then you're just kind of you know you're going like, you know, then you're looking at yourself. But if you get close to reflective glass. You know what happens if you get really close to it? You can look through it. It's easier for us when we think about God to see ourselves. What the writer's doing, he's encouraging us. Put your face closer. Look into the place where God is. And what it's indicating for us when we look through and we get past looking at ourselves and look at him The writer is suggesting he is at rest. And what the writer is compelling us to do, go ahead. He's asking you to join him. Go ahead. But I'm not at rest. I know. That's why you need to join him. Because he is. So you don't control your restlessness. Bring it with you. And enter his rest. It's spiritual priority number one. That's what this writer is indicating. Um, We enter God's rest. You know the the image of Jesus knocking on our door? Knocking on the door. You've seen that. And that's, that's a good image. This is different though, isn't it? He's not knocking on our door. We are entering his. We're not even knocking. It says, let us approach with confidence the throne of grace. Confidence means that you don't <clears throat> you know you don't have to you don't you know kind of wipe your shoes and you know, take something out of your teeth. It says, come on in and enter with confidence into the throne of grace. Um, it says we have come to share in Christ in the first verse fourteen. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm the end. This is giving the goal. So entering God's rest is the means. But what's the destination? What is it that God wants from us? He wants us to enter his rest. But what does he want to generate? What he wants us to do is hold firmly our original confidence until the end. Let me tell you what confidence is. Confidence, we've talked about it. It's the word parousia. It's a Greek word, and here's what it means, is that in the Roman Empire, if you were a Roman citizen and you were beckoned into the halls of somebody in power, you could do so if you're a Roman citizen. Don't go if you're not a Roman citizen. But if you were a Roman citizen, you can't enter with confidence and speak freely when you're there. That's what confidence is. It is the sense that I can enter God's presence. That's part of confidence, but it's not just entering his presence. It's entering his presence and speaking freely to him while there. That's what God wants to develop in us. He wants us to learn to do that and keep doing it. And keep doing it. And keep doing it entering his presence, speaking freely, entering his presence, speaking freely. That's what he's cultivating in us. The evidence of authenticity is the capacity to approach the throne of grace honestly and to continue to do so over the years. Sometimes in the beginning of our Christian life, we're very honest with him, and then that honesty tends to tail away. We become a little bit disillusioned with ourselves. We start to think that God's up there going, oh, and frankly, our relationship with him becomes icy, not from his side, but from ours. It's like when you owe somebody money, and you owe them money, and you owe them money, and it used to be, hey, you know what, I got your money, I'll, I'll get it right to you. And then you see him two weeks later, oh boy, there's Lyle. <laughs> <laughs> and so you, you, that's that's what we do. We imagine that God's holding these expectations over our head. He's saying, come on, come on. Where's the obedience you owe me? Where are those promises you made to me? Come on, follow. You know what God's really saying to you? I want from you what I've wanted you from the beginning, now and always. I want you to enter my presence and speak freely. That's what I want. So, to stand outside of, this, that's not what he wants. He, he wants us to hold to our original confidence firm until the end. And during God's, entering God's rest is the way to do that. I'll tell you what. If you perceive God as frustrated and restless, you are not going to want to speak freely with him. You just don't. Somebody who's restless and angry, you're not going to want to see him. By the way, That's not him. God is at rest when he thinks about you. God is at rest when he thinks about me. God is at rest when he thinks about the world. He's at rest. It's difficult to understand. Entering God's rest is the formula for enduring confidence. Rest is the solution. If rest is the solution, what's the problem? This is tricky. Restlessness is the problem. Restlessness is the problem. Rather than look at him and enter his presence and say, wait, I'll, I'll get it. Let me, I got it. I'm on it. Okay? Gee, I, how in the world like I, I promise God I'd do that now. And so now? Restlessness becomes the problem. We become aware of all the things that we promise to do and we lose sight of what he wants And we fall into imagining what he wants. And then rather than enter his presence, we try to fix everything, fix our desires, fix our world, fix our family. And we fix first, and then we imagine entering later. That's backwards. We enter first. We enter first and enter his rest. That's the solution. We are hard-hearted, rebellious, disobedient, and disbelieving because we're restless, not vice versa. We imagine that we are restless because we're disbelieving. No, we are disbelieving because we're restless. We imagine that we're restless because we're hard-hearted. No, we're hard-hearted because we're restless. We imagine that we're restless because we're disobedient. No, we're disobedient because we're restless. Restlessness is the problem. It keeps us from entering the throne of grace, speaking freely, being comfortable, developing a relationship with our Father. That's what the writer is saying. Let's try to understand more about restlessness. Restlessness comes from frustrated desires. Let me tell you what restlessness is about. It's about, I don't have what I want to have. I don't do what I want to do. I don't think what I want to think. And I don't feel what I want to feel. And that's why I'm restless. I don't have what I want to do. That's why I'm restless. I don't think what I want to think. That's why I'm restless. I don't do what I want to do. That's why I'm restless. I don't feel what I want to feel. That's why I'm restless. And we try to fix it so that we have what we want. We think what we want. We do what we want. We feel what we want. And we try to do these things. we gaze at our feelings and gaze at our thoughts and gaze at our actions and gaze at our words and glance at God. You're going to help. or what's the deal? I mean, if you're not too busy. It's upside down. Upside down. Um, Restlessness comes from frustrated desires. Unfortunately, frustrated desires and restlessness are non-negotiable. Look what it says in James 4: What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? By the way, restlessness—that's where it comes from. Passions at war inside. It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. The spirit that he has made to dwell in us is restless. I want you to hear me. The spirit he made to live in us from this description in this passage is restless. Restlessness is our default setting. We don't have to do anything. To be restless. All we have to do is walk through this life um, left untreated. Frustrated desires lead to craving, contempt, and conflict. Here's the question. Why does God tell us to control something he placed inside of us? If he put restlessness inside of us, why does he tell us to control it? He doesn't tell us to control it. If you hear him saying, control your restlessness, that's not what he's saying. saying, you restless ones. Come and enter my rest. Would you agree controlling your restlessness and entering his rest are not the same thing? Is that right? If you enter his rest, do you have to control your restlessness first? No, he doesn't tell you to do that. In fact, what he tells you to do is bring your restlessness. Enter his rest. And as you're in his rest, guess what will happen? Your restlessness will... To the degree we see him, it will start to soften. You find yourself talking to him. God, it's hard for me. I feel this. I'm doing this. And we end up speaking to him as we express ourselves to him. Our pulse starts to drop a little bit. Our breathing becomes a little deeper. We start to settle in in his presence. What God says that is exactly what I want from you. I don't want you running around. There's things to do. I want you to enter my rest first. Connection, then correction. There's things to correct, right? Connect, then correct. Rest, then effort. That's the way it works. Again, this sounds nice. It's not, it's not easy. Um, God tells us to enter his rest. We don't exit our restlessness. We enter his rest. Now notice, right? We don't exit our restlessness. We enter his rest. That's what we're being told to do. Um, Entering God's rest is a solution, but it's a solution that apparently we can't experience alone. What it says in Hebrews 4, 1 and 2, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. What it says, God can give us good news, but good news can't benefit us if we don't believe it. Uh, God's news to us, he says, I want you to enter my rest. Yeah, right, (laughs) sure. How do we overcome questions that we have? How many of us have questions about entering God's rest? I mean, how do we pull this off? What do we do about that? You know what the writer is suggesting? Don't try it alone. Don't try it alone. God places us in communities for a purpose. And what's happening in this letter, there are individuals who are staying in these Jewish Christian churches, and there's a bunch of Jewish Christians that are leaving. It's just too hard. They've lost neighborhood, they've lost livelihood, and what the writer is indicating, he's trying to get these who are staying to go after those who are leaving, and what he's saying, they can't do this alone. They can't do this alone. But, but these ones who are staying, if they could enter God's rest, if they could learn to breathe, you know what they'd find? Welling up out of rest? Compassion. You know what? Let's go after them. You know, there is something. This is hard. Christian life for first century Jew is difficult. But God has a way of Teaching us in that context to enter rest, and what he wants is those who stayed to go after those who didn't stay, because the fact is, they are not going to be able to find God's rest alone. That's what the writer is concerned about, and he wants these ones to make sure that they don't fall short of the rest of God. Um, we don't enter into God's rest in isolation. leads us to some questions as we practically, what does this mean? One good question is, how do we enter rest? How do we enter rest? Um, There's a related question we'll deal with next week. We'll talk about how a little bit today, and then in upcoming weeks we'll flesh it out. Another question is, when do we enter rest? When do we enter rest? And there is an answer, and this is what we'll learn next week. We enter rest today. We can trust God today. Today is the only day we can trust God. The only day we can enter God's rest is today. We can't trust God tomorrow. You understand what I'm saying? We can only trust Him today. Now when today becomes tomorrow, it's today. And then we can trust Him tomorrow. But not until it becomes today. Do you understand what I'm saying? We tend to, our rest is based on stockpiled resources. We imagine what we're going to need in the future, and God says, "Mm, guess what, you know what, this arrangement, this about you entering my rest, it's not a once and done. This is a daily thing. You're going to go to sleep, and you're going to wake up, and it's going to hit you again. What if, oh no, what if, oh no, and then I'm going to want you, come on, come on. I'm still at rest today. And I want you to come in, I want you to enter my rest today. Today is the day we enter God's rest. That's what we'll talk about next week. Um, How do we enter rest? Let's look at that. Let me ask another question. How do we learn to enter rest? Change it a little bit. Where do we learn to enter rest? Look what it says. Um, God teaches us to enter his rest in the wilderness. Deuteronomy says, You shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your feet foot did not swell. These 40 years, know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. God teaches us to enter his rest in the wilderness. Um, We don't learn to enter God's rest when we have what we want, but when we don't. This is not pleasant, but it's true. We don't learn to enter God's rest until we have to until we look horizontally and see barrenness. Barrenness. Past, present, barren. I don't see any possibility of support here. I don't see how this could work out well. I don't see a solution. I see problems. I don't see solutions. That's what happens in the wilderness. A lot of problems, very few solutions. I don't need to tell you about some of that. That's exactly where some of you are. And you're wondering, why is he doing this to me? Why is he doing this to me? To teach you to enter his rest. We don't enter God's rest until we have to. But then as we learn to enter God's rest when we have to, it starts to grow on us we develop a capacity to do so but it's in the midst of difficult things god causes us to hunger feeds us in unexpected ways teaches us to depend on what he says that rather than on what he gives just talk about rest again from one perspective it's kind of a nice image rest Kind of good, but on another level, it can feel like an additional burden. Mike, I'm trying to put my life in order. I'm trying to attend and do the things I think God wants me to do. So now you're telling me not only do I have to clean the outside things, but I have to clean the inside stuff? I have to mess around with the inside stuff, and um, we, I not only have to clean the outside of the cup and dish, but I need to, to cleanse the inside as well. I want you to remember. What God wants from you. Do you remember it? He wants you to enter his rest. But do you remember what he wants you to continue to do? Hold firm your original confidence until the end. Confidence is entering God's presence and speaking freely with him there. That's what he wants from us. And. That is accomplished when we're in a place where we can't manage on our own. We find we have to turn somewhere. Our wife can't help us with this problem. Our husband, our kids, he can't, she can't, they can't. I can't find a solution. I can't find a solution. I have no place to go. I look at the past, look at the present, look at the future, nothing. And God says, I know a restful place. You don't need to make yourself rest. Come to me. And what God would indicate that he is at rest, and as we understand that and learn to move towards him, we find a capacity to grow in our ability to want to go to him and speak freely. That is what he wants from us. More than your obedience He wants you to be confident in entering His presence, because confidence will usher forth obedience and belief and soft heartedness. If rest is the solution, yeah, rest is the solution. Um, We talked about sympathy and sovereignty. In order to, I'm going to close with this. In order to hold on to confidence, we need to have. Two things in view. Like, in order to, to enter God's presence, wear your glasses. And one lens is sympathy, and one lens is sovereignty. Sympathy and sovereignty. Sympathy. Um, if restlessness is the problem, let you imagine, if restlessness is the problem, question. Did Jesus experience restlessness? Jesus experienced restlessness? Does that mean Jesus experienced what could become the problem? Jesus experienced the problem. He experienced restlessness. Did he ever sin? Did he experience restlessness, though? Does he sympathize with your restlessness? That's one thing to hold on to. Jesus understands restlessness. He gets it. And that's one thing we hold on to because we enter God's presence. You're at rest and I'm a mess. But what the son says, "Let let me take you to my father. And by the way, I understand your restlessness and I understand yours and I understand yours and I understand yours. Take my hand. Let's go to see the father. I understand your restlessness. I understand yours. Remember, Jesus said, now is my soul troubled. You know what troubled means? Restless. Restless. It's like a storm at sea. My soul is restless. And you know what the good thing about Jesus? He didn't say my soul is restless. (laughs) I can't say that because I'm the son of God. I couldn't say my soul is restless. But that's exactly why he came. To be embodied. And experience what we who have bodies experience. Which is restlessness. We're always pinging the environment. Ping, 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 trying to see if it's safe, security, if we too close to danger. You know, like you have cars and the beeps when you come towards the curb. Beep, 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 We have those sensors in us. We're always pinging the environment. Am I close to danger? Ping, 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 ping. Am I away from safety? And when we do that, it goes off. And we become restless. We don't ask you to be restless. We just do. And what Jesus says, by the way, I understand that. Because I ping the environment as well. Now Jesus understood the Father and he entered his rest. That's where Jesus was amazing. He could just admit I'm restless, but I know the Father is compassionate. (laughs) You and I have a harder time because... We look at the glass and we see, oh boy, what a mess I am. And Jesus didn't look at himself. He looked through it to see the Father. That's what I need to see. That's what I need to see. My Father. I know my Father. And I'm going to say exactly what he wants me to say because he is in control and I trust him. I trust him. And I speak to him. That's why Jesus got up early in the morning. Why? In order to find In order to enter into rest. That's why Jesus got up early in the morning. To process restlessness. To enter rest. Uh, Sympathy. Jesus sees you. He understands why you want this and that. He sees you. More than that, he sympathizes with you. He says, I know what it's like to be pulled in half. And he deals gently with you. He's not harsh with restless people. He understands it too well. So that's the sign. And then the sovereignty. Our restlessness does not make God restless. You know what I hear in the overwhelming majority of Christian messages? This is what I hear. Something that either directly or indirectly implies that God is restless. Angry. Upset. Disillusioned. And then what I hear is then some things are given to the congregation to do to make God feel better, to help him to be at rest. Again, that's a little extreme. But the idea of a God at rest, I don't hear it. I don't hear it. The idea of being able to make God happier, I tell you what, if you don't do what God wants you to do today, God will have a great day. Your behavior does not control him. If you stumble, he's not going to bite his nails. That's kind of a good thing, isn't it? That's a good thing, isn't it? And what he would have us do is to understand his sovereignty. um, It's hard for us to approach God's throne and speak freely with him. When we imagine him in an agitated state, this again, and I'm done. Uh, Demi, come on up. And the worship team. Um, In this message, the most difficult part, as I think of it, is the belief that God is at rest that He is that much in control. When that starts, then we can take our restlessness and enter His rest. And we do that daily, and that's what we'll talk about next week. Father, we come to You, and uh, in Your Word... In the first half, there's many places where you are reflected as angry. And we can't get around that. You, that's what's there. But what you would have us understand is that it's not that you change in the Bible, but your covenant does. And that was a conditional covenant. And on this side of the cross, we're under a new covenant. And you put your law in our minds and write it on our hearts. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother say no the Lord, because they will all know you from the least to the greatest, for you forgive be helios to our unrighteousness, says, and remember our sins no more, it means you're non reactive now. On this side of the cross, and this is what you deeply are. Deeply are. Jesus reveals you. And I'd ask that we would get that image in our mind and understand that you are a God at rest so that we could learn in our wildernesses to enter that rest. In Jesus' name, amen.